I remember one of my earliest memories of my existence is, and I have no idea what I was doing, but striking a match, letting it burn a little bit, blowing it out, and then eating the thing. I don't know what. I, I have no idea. Number one, why I was playing with matches, what my mom was allowing me to do, I have no idea, but that's one of the earliest memories. But um, I don't know, that really has nothing to do with much of anything other than the memory, another early memory that I have, not quite so early, um, was you would, uh, the times when I was in grade school and I'd be sick, uh, and uh, being sick, somehow I was never quite sick enough not to watch a little television. <laughs> And uh, I remember watching the game shows. It was always one of my favorites, you know, Joker's Wild, all those old game shows. And remember, you know, if you didn't win the, the jackpot, the $1,000 or whatever it may be, there always seemed to be a consolation prize, you know, like a year's supply of rice aroni or something like that. Um, and so we're going to talk today about consolation, but it's not in that context. It's not like a second-rate type of thing. Um, but the consolation that we're going to talk about is more like when a young child skins their knee and they run to mama, mommy, 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 and they're looking for consolation from their mother. They're looking for comfort from their mother. That's the consolation we're going to, uh, to look at. Is, uh, Oxford design, defines consolation. It's comfort received by a person after a loss or disappointment. Comfort received by a person after a loss or loss or disappointment. Um, If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We will start at verse 25. We think about the Christmas season and the coming of our Savior and the uh, incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is a passage that um, maybe not too often comes during Christmas time, but uh, one that uh, just, just struck me, and so that's what we're going to look at today. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law... Then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at these things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. To the end, that that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after marriage. And then as a widow, to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with the fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came and began to give thanks to God and continued to speak to Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, there's an awful lot of content in in this passage, but I want to focus in on this idea of the consolation of Israel. The word consolation, the Greek word is paraklesis, uh, meaning comfort. It's the same word that's used 
to describe a, the action of the Holy Spirit, that it brings comfort in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Here we see that Jesus is comfort. Jesus is consolation. Um, and about that, a, a 17th century Presbyterian clergyman named John Flavel writes, Christ is said to be the matter or substance and the spirit, the applier of true comfort to the people of God. So the first question that comes to my mind is, why did Israel need consolation? Why did Israel need comfort? <clears throat> and I think we need to just basically look at the Old Testament in a summation. Uh, Israel, of course, was the chosen people of God, uh, but suffering and pain and misery was upon them. Uh, they were given the land of promise, but they died, most of them, in the wilderness before they reached the land of promise because of their disobedience. Uh, they... Con- they uh, uh, led conquests against the promised land in the name of God and uh, uh, drove out the enemy in, 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 uh, in glorious victory in the book of Joshua, but they didn't do it for any, they didn't do it in completion or for any permanence. Then comes the anarchy of the judges uh, in the book of Judges where everybody did what was right in their own eye. They exchanged divine kingship for human kingship when they wanted Saul to be king. Uh, They went from a united nation to a divided nation. They were once miraculously delivered from exile in uh, Egypt and then taken into exile to with to the sent to exile with in the Babylonians. Their voice of God had been in their midst through the prophets, but then there came the four hundred years of silence after the prophet Malachi. Whether they realized it or not, some did, some didn't. Israel needed comfort. After not hearing from God for some 400 years, Israel was in pain. By and large, Israel had forgotten God and settled into a small portion of the promised land that was governed not by God, but by Caesar. The once glorious nation that was now a mere subset of people living under the reign of a human monarch. Gone are the days where God had ruled over Israel. Gone are the days where God had spoke to Israel through His prophets. And gone are the days when a pleasing aroma arose from the temple. God was silent in voice, but not in action. He had sovereignly worked His will in His people and prepared for this time of the Messiah, this time which we're now looking at here in the book of Luke, the time where Simeon, the Simeon was waiting for. So why was Simeon waiting for this consolation of Israel? Why was it that he was looking for the Messiah? Um, First of all, I would say that uh, there is always, has always, God has always provided a remnant, even through all of this disobedient time of the nation of Israel. We think of Joseph. Uh, he spared Joseph in the time of famine and sent him to Egypt. He, uh, uh, all the, when, the, when the spies went into the land at the time of the conquest, when the time for Israel to take the promised land, and all the spies came back and they said, they're too big, we can't take them. There was Joshua and Caleb said, Yes, we can, because the Lord will go before us. Or if it was the time of the exile when the people had forgotten God and there was, God had raised up and, and kept Daniel the prophet. There's always a remnant. God will always provide a remnant. And here we see, I think, part of the remnant at, the, at this time, uh, and that was Simeon. In the book of Isaiah, we see that the Messiah was prophesied. Many places in the book of Isaiah, many places in other books uh, of the Old Testament. I want to read just, just one. This is from Isaiah chapter 53. 
As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The Messiah was prophesied in the Old Testament. Uh, one contemporary that looked at this particular passage, Jay Sekulow, probably know who Jay Sekulow, Center for, American Center for the Law and Justice. He's, you know, he's the guy on the radio. He's going 100 miles an hour like he's had you know, five monster drinks or something. Uh, but he, here is what he says about this particular messianic passage. He says, I be, this is his, part of his testimony. He says, I began to research of the passage and I started to look for the rabbinic interpretations. That's when I began to worry. If I read the passage once, I'm sure I read it 500 times. I looked for as many traditional Jewish interpretations as I could find. A number of them, especially the earlier ones, described the text as messianic, as a messianic prophecy. Other interpretations claimed the suffering servant was Isaiah himself or even the nation of Israel, but those explanations were an embarrassment to me. The details in the text obviously don't add up to the prophet Isaiah or the nation of Israel. I kept looking for a traditional Jewish explanation that would satisfy, but found none. The only plausible explanation seemed to be Jesus. Now this is a man who was looking back at something God had already provided, the Messiah. When we look at Simeon, he was still looking forward. I've thought about that idea quite a bit this week as... We think about the salvation of mankind. We are all saved through the blood uh, of Jesus Christ. But these people, Simeon being one of them, were looking forward to something that had not happened. It seems to me it's almost they almost had more faith than we do as looking back to, to some event that already has happened. So clearly in the Old Testament, I've given one example, there are certainly many others, that uh, this salvation of Israel, this Messiah uh, to console and to comfort Israel was to come. And Simeon, not only did he see it in Scripture, but he was also, the text in Luke chapter 2 tells us, was given a special revelation from the Holy Spirit that he would see the Messiah before he died. I think the Old Testament not only clearly tells us that the Messiah was going to come, I think he gives us, that the the, the, uh, prophets give us even a um, an idea of when he was going to come. And we, let's take a look at Daniel chapter 9. Hold your finger in Luke chapter 2 and go to Daniel chapter 9. Now, much of, has been written about this passage, and I am going to only just skim it, not to give any kind of a defense of dates and, and that type of thing. But Daniel chapter 9 is the record... In the earlier part of Daniel chapter 9, he is lamenting basically the sins of Israel. He's confessing that they have disobeyed God, they have walked away from God, that they need to come back from God, and basically their, their old, utter de- need for God, their utter dependence upon God. Let's start at verse 24, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Seventy weeks have been declared. Now let me just stop there for a second. (laughs) 
Uh, the NASB uses weeks. I think even the ESV uses the term weeks. I think the NIV, in my opinion, gets it right here. It says 77s. Uh, as best as I can understand it, it's, when we think a week, we get something very specific in mind, <laughs> a seven-day week. But it's really 77s, and I think that's important when, when it comes to the interpretation of this prophetic passage. It's just simply a group of 77s. So I'm going to insert the word sevens in there instead of weeks as I read from the New American Standard. Seventy-sevens have been declared for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be built again with plaza, plaza and moat, even in times of distress, Then after the sixty-two sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and it will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war and desolations are determined, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one seven. But in the middle of the seven, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes one who makes desolate. Now, there is not only there is a whole theology <laughs> built around this uh, this passage, and I think in most cases, rightfully so. A lot of uh, just so much meat here, and, and I'm not going to dig into the details, but I simply want to point out several things. First of all. The text clearly says here in the Daniel that there are going to be seven sevens after the time of the decree for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Now, some place that decree as being Cyrus's decree, some Artaxerxes, however you pronounce that decree. There's even two other options that I found. You know, I'm not I'm not sure of the dates, uh, the exact dates when you start talking about ancient times are a little bit uh, sketchy. But uh, generally, it's accepted that these are talking about seven years, the 770s, or the 770s and the 770s and the 6270s. From that time, after it's been, Jerusalem has been rebuilt, 62 more 70s come. 62 times 7, you can do the math. There's a number of years there, and then the Messiah will come. Well, we are looking at that period of time as being the period of time when Jesus, the Messiah, came. So I think not only... Was Simeon looking for a Messiah in general? But more specifically, there was a timing thing. I don't know if he knew the exact time, the exact date. I don't know. But there was an element here that the time of the Messiah to come was exactly was the time when Jesus did in fact come. So Simeon clearly has seen, knew that there was going to be a Messiah clearly, I think, knew that there was the timing of the Messiah was going to be in his, around his lifetime. And, of course, Simeon had one other thing, which is the direct revelation of the Holy Spirit that this, the Messiah would indeed come in his particular lifetime. Simeon was waiting in faith. Back to Luke chapter 2. Christ is the consolation. 
the Old Testament, um, clearly there is blessing and cursing for obedience and disobedience in the nation of Israel when uh, uh, throughout the throughout most of the Old Testament. If you were going to obey God, there was going to be blessing in your life, personal life, there was going to be blessing in the life of the nation of Israel. Disobedience, uh, just the opposite. Um, Deuteronomy 27 and 28 probably lays that out the best if you're interested in seeing the, the, the contrast between blessing and cursing. Now part a big part, I think, of what the Old Testament teaches us in a very broad spectrum is that God is holy, God had a perfect law, and as Israel, God gave that law to Israel, Israel knew what the law was, they had direct revelation from God, they had direct interaction with God, but they still were not able to keep the law. They disobeyed, they disobeyed, they disobeyed. They could not do it. They could not uh, please God in any perfect or, or complete way. And so, it was only going to be God Himself that would reach down to His people and comfort His people. From Isaiah chapter 40, another prophecy uh, about the comforting of the people of Israel. Starting at verse 1. I'm, comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And then to verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Amidst all the disobedience of Israel, amidst all of the rebellion of Israel, God still cares, loves, and wants to comfort Israel. The picture here of Jesus the shepherd and tending his flock and nursing his ewes. Out of 400 years of silence comes the voice of God to and through many people. When you read the Gospels and the accounts of, of the Christmas time, it just is amazing to me, just the flood, if you will, of the Holy Spirit coming back into the nation of Israel. There's re revelation to Zechariah. There's revel divine revelation to Mary, to Joseph, to Simeon, uh, that the time of the Spirit of God is back upon them. The announcements are no small thing. God was speaking to Israel again. God had not forgotten Israel. The time of the Lord's Messiah had come. So for us, what does this mean? A couple of things that I thought about as, as I was reading this passage and thinking about this passage, and a couple, couple of application. First, Jesus alone is our consolation. Jesus alone is our consolation. Again, quoting from John Flavel, the Presbyterian 17th century minister. He writes, first, that the matter thereof be spiritual, imminent, and durable good, else our consolation in it will be as the crackling of thorns under a pot, a sudden blaze, quickly extinct, 
with the failing matter of it. Christ only gives the matter of solid, durable consolation. The righteousness of Christ, the pardon of sin, the favor of God, the hopes of glory are the substantial matters of a believer's consolation. I think back to John chapter 6. Jesus is giving a hard teaching about um, uh, that uh, those who come must come, come only to him. And Peter says, you know, to who else may we go? And when we think about Jesus alone being our consolation, the point I want to talk about here, and I think is, one, is going to be one of the biggest challenges, I think, for the church of the next few decades, you know, who knows. This is, just, this is kind of my thoughts, okay? And that is the idea of universalism. Um, universalism is the idea that it usually is couched something like this. God is all-loving. He's an all-good God. He loves you. He loves me. He loves all the world. So therefore, it must be that God is going to save all of mankind, that all of mankind will be saved unto His kingdom. That's a a general characterization of of universalism. And I think this is is going to, to be, and already is becoming, a very big challenge in the church. The evangelicals' role in universalism, so to speak, is to simply proclaim salvation to everybody rather than to call people to salvation. Calling people to the only one who can give true consolation. Calling people to the one and only Jesus Christ. Um, there, I grew up in a small church uh, in my young childhood. I've, of course, been through gone to several churches, but this is one in my young childhood. I wouldn't call it an evangelical stalwart type of church, but the gospel was there. The gospel message was there. Um, however, I just recently have, have I still have a few friends uh, back from, from that time, and this, and this particular church now, the pastor is promoting multiple ways to heaven, multiple pathways to God. Now that in and of itself isn't Technically universalism, but it's going down the path that there are multiple ways uh, into, into heaven. I think we have to, as evangelicals, be loudly proclaiming the exclusive, exclusiveness of Jesus Christ, that He alone is our consolation. Number two, I think we need to let the idea of consolation permeate our lives. Now, Jesus, of course, brings ultimate, permanent, uh, complete comfort to a person's life. But just like, we, although we can't love perfectly, we can't love like God loves, we can take a portion of that in love. We can show love in some resemblance of what God does, although we don't do it perfectly. I think the same is true for the idea of consolation and comfort. We need to... Um, bring comfort into other people's lives. How do we do that? You know, and again, I think it starts in the church. From what I can see, we do a pretty good job of that. When we talk about meals, when we talk about notes and cards of people that are maybe in a difficult time, whatever it may be, shoeboxes, angels, rescue mission runs. I mean, there's a sense of comfort, I think, that, that, that is in those, those things that we do. 
Another idea when it comes to the idea of consolation in an individual's life, and this is one that I uh, sometimes struggle with a little bit, is being a farm boy, the mentality of self-reliance, pulling your boots, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, that type of thing. Um, let me just speak to that a little bit. Extreme self-reliance, I think, is the antithesis of the gospel. The gospel is the denial of self and the reliance on God. I think the idea of extreme self-reliance can be found in the legalism that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. They thought that they alone could be good enough for God, thinking the path of good works leads to God. But we as people who have trusted in Christ believe different. The path to God is through God. Our ultimate comfort is in the hands of another, in the hands of God. If this is true in our biggest need for comfort, how much truer is it, truer is it in the things of this world? Sometimes we simply need to let others help us pull up our boots, and sometimes we need to help others pull up their boots. I was thinking of a time in my life, and again, I always forget what I share when, so if I've shared this, I'm sorry, but a very poignant time in my life, September 30th, 1988, about midnight, Ravon and I get a call. Uh, my brother-in-law has uh, basically, and, and nephew was in a plane crash, uh, and we found out hours later that, that they had died and perished. But I will never forget that, the longing in my heart, because there was extreme pain, <laughs> I mean just heartache uh, in my life, but there was an incredible yearning to be a part of a church service that Sunday. And I honestly don't think I've really put it together until this week. What I was really yearning for was comfort. I was looking for some comfort from, from people. Uh, from believers, from followers of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly, exactly what I got. Uh, we have to be willing as people not only to give comfort, to, but to be comforted. Christmas season is a time when many are hurting and depressed. I think we need to be very intentional during this time to look for opportunities to bring some comfort to others. Sometimes comfort is a matter, I think, of just listening. I know there's been uh, men who have come to me throughout my life and some difficult struggles, some maybe not so important, so difficult struggles, but it was uh, you know, just a time in their life where they were struggling and they needed some comfort. And all, all, you do, and all I did was listen. You know, just listening to somebody and taking the time to converse with them and hear what their struggles are is a sense of comfort. Don't underestimate just listening to somebody's struggles that in and of itself bring comfort i think sometimes comfort bring you, you can bring comfort to people even sometimes when you don't know it this is again another personal illustration um, and i've shared with some of you this but over the last couple of years there's been a lot of changes in my life job changes church changes community changes and uh just a lot of different things. My circle of friends has really not completely changed, but it's a big part of it has changed. And I'm not even going to give you some examples, because if I gave you the examples, you would think they were utterly silly. But there are things that, you got, that folks in this room have done that are very simple, that I'm sure if I said it, you wouldn't even know that you did it, but you brought me comfort. And so when we think about the idea of comfort, um, again... It is something that we can all do. It's easy. I don't think a lot of times it's very difficult. Sometimes it's easy as listening. Sometimes it's just conversing, being yourself with one another. Um, 
making people like myself feel at home and getting to, uh, comfort that way. Finally, the idea in this in verse 32, Luke writes about this consolation not only being the glory of the people of Israel, but the Gentiles, you and I, are brought into this. We are, it is the, Jesus is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Upon the empowering of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, a new age had begun. The church age, this age that we now live, God has instituted the entity called the church that is made up of Jew and Gentile. Now we look back in time to the consolation. We decide whether we are going to trust in our own ability to bring comfort or believe in the one who can bring true, complete, and everlasting comfort. The consolation of Israel is our comfort. Let us be reminded of this consolation as we take the bread and the cup. Let's pray. Father, we... uh, Think back to the consolation that uh, Simeon was looking forward to. Father, to this Messiah, to this Jew who would fulfill the law as your people could not. That would be the sacrifice for our sins. Father, that would bring us consolation when it comes to our spiritual well-being, when it comes to our relationship with God. Father, you are the one who brought comfort. You are the comfort. And Father, I pray that as we go out this week, and Father, even this uh, Christmas season, that this idea of comfort will be something that we could pass on to other people, however it may be, small things, maybe big things. But Father, may we be intentional about it. May we be looking for opportunities. And those opportunities that come, Father, may we be faithful to uh, act upon them. And Father, I just uh, pray for this Christmas season as it's uh, so easy in our country to be moved away from what we're truly celebrating. We pray that we will help one another to and remind one another of the reason for the season. In Jesus' name, amen.